Alright everyone, welcome back. This is Didactic Mind, episode 56. God's not dead. I am Didact, as always, and a uh, very warm welcome to all of my long-time listeners, all of my subscribers, my well, at the moment, it's like one subscriber on Podbean. But uh, if you've been subscri- if you were subscribed to the old um, the Didactic Mind podcast on SoundCloud, and you happen to have found your way here, uh, very warm welcome back. Um, and if you are new here and you've come through from uh, Google Podcasts or Apple iTunes or uh, Spotify, uh, very warm welcome to you as well. Uh, as you can see from the SoundCloud, uh, damn it. The Podbean catalog. Uh, there are something like 71 episodes of um, 56 of them from Didactic Mind, and another, uh, well, 55 of them from Didactic Mind, and 16 from the Domain Query series, and this is going to be 56. Um, if you have not already subscribed, please make sure you hit the subscribe button so that you never miss a new upload. Um, moving to Podbean was definitely a very, very good idea. Um, because the integrations with other podcasting platforms are superb. Uh, it's a much, much better platform for hosting podcasts and uh, doing this stuff than anything that um, SoundCloud had offered. I mean, you had to do it all manually there. You had to upload everything manually onto um, iTunes and Google Podcasts and Spotify, Pandora, uh, Amazon Audible, etc., etc. It's kind of a pain in the butt. Um, Podbean just makes it a lot easier. Now, again, I'm under no illusions as to whether or not um, Podbean is a long-term solution. I don't think it is. I think um, Podbean is just as cucked and just as paused out as any of the big tech platforms. But for the time being, at least, um, it seems to be a pretty reasonable solution, especially given the price, which which is really very, very good. Um, so, uh, onward to the, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, what's been going on for the last, uh, couple of weeks. Um, uh, I have deliberately stayed away from the election hoopla, um, for the most part, because the disconnect between what's in the media and what I'm reading and seeing is unbelievable. I've never seen such an enormous gulf between what the media says and what's actually happening on the ground. Um, On the surface, it would seem that his most illustrious, noble, august, benevolent, and legendary celestial majesty, the god-emperor of mankind, Donaldus Triumphus Magnus Astra, the first of his name, the lion of midnight, the chaddest of chads, may the Lord bless him and preserve him, uh, is going to lose. I mean, it seems as though every single challenge he has made in court is either getting thrown out or being dismissed. But then you look at the, the, the details beneath the headlines and there's something very, very strange going on. If you, um, for instance, uh, Georgia certified its election results very recently and the recount um, did not... The, the recount that the, the Trump campaign requested supposedly did not make any difference. Except, while the Georgia governor, uh, as, as John C. Wright pointed out on his blog, certified the presidential electors for Biden, the problem is 
that if you read beneath the headlines, um, they have the Trump campaign has two business days to request a recount since the margin is within 0.5%. And on top of that, it in it, the um, the total certified by the counties, not the results of the hand tally, was certified by the state. Now this is dated as of Friday, 6:15 p.m. Um, presumably Eastern Time, because uh, um, Grandmaster uh, John C. Wright resides in Virginia, I believe. So as far as I know, it's Eastern Time. Um, that means that Trump has, or the Trump campaign has until probably Tuesday to request a full recount, a full manual recount of all the results. What is going on? Um, Trump's, the, the Trump campaign's lawsuit in Pennsylvania got tossed out by a judge uh, on First Amendment grounds, basically uh, the demand to stop counting uh, mail-in ballots was seen as an attempt to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of voters in Pennsylvania. And the district attorney of, um, or the, the, the state attorney, something like that, uh, said, uh, well, yeah, we're going for Trump. Um, we're going for, we're, we, we expected this more or less, is, is what he said. This is, uh, another example of something that, you know, the Democrat led executive branch in Pennsylvania expected it. Now, the legislature in Pennsylvania is Republican controlled, but the executive branch is Democrat controlled. And it is the executive branch that is making it very, very clear um, they will happily just ride roughshod over their own laws. Uh, the uh, the judicial branch in Pennsylvania has also um, done exactly the same thing. They literally the the court the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania uh, invalidated an election law, basically made up a new law on the spot because it was passed by the Republicans. There's something very strange going on right now. Um, there are great forces on the move right now, and it's very easy for those of us who are attuned to such things, um, because we are Christians. This is something that we feel almost in our bones if we take our faith seriously, or even reason, even somewhat seriously. We can feel it. And I can definitely feel it. I can feel that there is something very very deep going on here, very odd. Um, it brings to mind that old Winston Churchill quote about how uh, when great forces are on the move in the world, we learn that we are spirits, not animals. And uh, it's a quote that uh, Reagan mentioned in his Time for Choosing speech in, um, on October 27, 1964 at the RNC. If you go look up uh, Reagan and Time for Choosing, you'll find the full text of the speech, and it is an absolute barn burner of a speech. Um, if you look at uh, what he said down below, he quotes Churchill towards the end of the speech, and here's what he actually said. He said, um, The destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn with spirits, not animals. And Churchill also said, There's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. Now, sadly, I do not have the Gipper's uh, legendary voice and his speaking style, and I certainly do not have his uh, superb sense of humor. So you're just going to have to uh, watch the video, actually, of him giving that speech to understand how brilliantly he delivered the oration. 
But the reason I wanted to bring this up is because if you read Vox Day's work, and you read the work of a vanishingly small number of conservatives and right-wingers, like me, um, we are basically saying it doesn't matter what the media says. The media are lying, and they are. I consistently and constantly see the BBC and CNN and everybody else saying, President-elect Biden. People, he is not the president-elect. Okay, it's not happened yet. Non-American readers do, or listeners will not understand the American system, so please stop listening to non-American media. In fact, stop listening to all media, whether American or otherwise, that try to talk about this, because none of them has the first clue how the American electoral system works. If you want to find out how it works, you can find out for yourself very easily. Just go look up the U.S. Constitution, and it will tell you exactly how the electoral college system works. That system is in place for a reason. Whoever wins the electoral college vote will not be decided until December 14th. That's how the system works. That's how it's designed. The popular vote does not really mean anything in America, and it's not supposed to. It never was. The idea is for the population to vote in their states to select electors, then those electors go and cast votes for whoever will become president. Now, suppose that a particular state's results have not been certified or are in question or the electors have not been selected by the uh, specific date, which was a problem back in 2000. Um, the, the, Gore the Gore campaign kept filing lawsuit after lawsuit, injunction after injunction, um, and the margin of victory was tiny. Uh, in Florida. Florida was uh, a state where there was rampant voting fraud, and we know that there was rampant voting fraud today. We know that there was rampant voting fraud later on in Ohio. Co in coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, this election and in the last few elections, Florida and Ohio have seen the tightest, most stringent ballot checking measures out of all the states, pretty much, because that's where the voting fraud happened. Meanwhile, in other states in the country, uh, inevitably, the mail-in ballot system really just flooded um, the, uh, inundated the, uh, the 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 voting registration system, and, and it was impossible for uh, people in the election officials to sort it out, and they were unable to do so. So they just got absolutely flooded with these um, these ballots that uh, they you know they they couldn't process in time, and they should have been able to, but they didn't. And this is part of the reason why we've had so much chaos, is because these mail-in ballots gummed up the works. Now, something funny is definitely going on, because while I don't think the Trump campaign has done a particularly good job of presenting its case, um, you know, the, the Giuliani press conference was something of an embarrassment, actually, from what little I've seen of it. And even Tucker Carlson, who is the most normally the most reliably and reliable and sensible of all the media voices out there. Even he's basically saying, look, we've seen no evidence or no proof from the Trump campaign. We've seen plenty of evidence. There's plenty of evidence that something weird is going on. But we've no seen nothing conclusive from the Trump campaign. We've seen no evidence sent over that would demonstrate to us that there's a serious problem. Meanwhile, if you actually look at the information out there, and it's not hard to find, you can go to Gateway Pundit, you can go to Vox Day's blog, you can go check out a number of different sources. 
they're all saying the same thing. Statistically speaking, the things that we're seeing are impossible. I mean, literally impossible. Uh, we have, there are now 234 pages worth of sworn affidavits. People swearing under oath, under penalty of perjury, that they saw and experienced and heard very strange things happening. Um, this, there's no doubt or question in my mind, this was the most fraudulent election in American history. And yet, either the Trump campaign is being deliberately coy or is being deliberately incompetent. I'm not sure which. Uh, either they don't have a case, in which case everything that the God Emperor has fought for for four years will come to naught. Or something more is going on behind the scenes than we realize. Now, Vox Day put up an interesting post um, just a day or two ago, I think today, in fact, in which he talked about what he is seeing himself. And um, he talked about how uh, there are a lot of people are missing a lot of things. People, people who have come to his blog and kind of black-pilled and, and given up and cucked. He's saying, no, there's something odd going on. His, the, the, what he, the exact words that he wrote were, I am actually a little more optimistic than one would assume on the basis of my posts here. And the reason is this. I know considerably more about what is going on behind the scenes of matters to which I am privy than the public does. But I can't say anything about what is happening now until the process is over. And that process will take months, if not years. And I also know that nothing anyone else says in public will have any, any impact whatsoever on the eventual result. Now, some say, some will say that I'm just engaging in rhetoric, that I'm just trying to keep the troops' spirits up, or simply accuse me of flying or failing to understand the situation. But I don't care what they think, because I not only know what is happening, I know for a fact that they don't. I'm genuinely confident, and those who are able to distinguish the false from front from the real thing can tell the difference. And while it is possible that I am wrong, both probability and previous records suggest otherwise. The process in which President Trump has been engaged is a much, much bigger one than most of us can even imagine. It has to run its course, and it has to run that course in the requisite amount of time. And while it is understandable that people are getting impatient and anxious, especially in light of the relentless pressure of the media's demoralization campaign engulfing them on a daily basis, the end result of the process has already been largely determined. Whether that end result is for good or for ill, how you feel today will not alter it at all. There's a lot to unpack in that statement, and I'm not going to do it here. I'll leave you to do it for yourself. But the point is, something deep is moving within the world and outside of it as well. And that brings up the theme of today's podcast, um, which is about God and about how he operates. Um, the inspiration for this comes partly from a YouTube video in which Dr. Frank Turek is confronted by a somewhat obnoxious atheist, actually, a very um, hardcore atheist named Cody. And this guy is known, you know, this, this, this guy is uh, well known for going to um, various uh, apologetics conferences and, and presentations and trying to trip up people with difficult moral questions. And uh, the question that Cody, this Cody guy, asked Dr. Turek was, um, if, he asked several questions, but one of them was um, something along the lines of, 
your God condones the murder and massacre of the Israelites, not not the Jews, the the uh, the, the people living in the land of Israel, uh, before the Jews got there, before the Lord released them from the wilderness and had them enter uh, Israel. So not the Israelites, excuse me, the Canaanites, I should say. Um, and Cody's argument was, that's insane, that's that's disgusting, that's uh, morally reprehensible. And Dr. Turek's answer to that was very, very solid. His, his response was, I mean, look, Dr. Turek is a PhD in apologetics. His knowledge of the Bible is vastly superior to my own. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm some hack who reads the Bible um, now and then and tries to apply it. Dr. Turek actually understands it and tries to live it. Um, what he said was very profound and very powerful and very correct. And what he said was, in God's eyes, it's not murder. Now, that seems like a very flippant and trite answer. It is not. What Dr. Tur the point that Dr. Turek made was God dictated that these people should die, and he didn't do it without reason. If you actually read the Bible, which most atheists don't bother with, it's very annoying that they don't bother with it, um, and I say this as a former atheist myself, I didn't read the Bible, and yet I criticized Christianity constantly, and I was wrong. I was totally and hopelessly wrong, for the same reason that guys like Cody are wrong. Um, his his statement in that that discussion was very clear. The Bible states very plainly that these Canaanites uh, would conduct child sacrifices to their god Molech. Uh, they would burn their children alive on the altars of Molech, you know, before the idols. And uh, it is is a matter of historical record that the priests of these Canaanite peoples would bang their drums uh, quite loudly to drown out the screams of infants being burned alive as part of their child sacrifices. And this has been going on for several hundred years by the time the Canaanites got there. I mean, excuse me, by the time the Israelites got there. Not the Canaanites, by the time the Israelites got there and were commanded to wipe out the Canaanites. Um, look also at some of the Canaanite peoples who had settled in and around the region. The Amorites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the... the... the uh, what else? Um, a couple of others, a couple of other tribes, I'm sure I've forgotten. Um, there were also the uh, Moabites and the... Um, who else? The, the tribes descended from Lot's daughters, two of them. Um, I forget exactly, but basically... Um, these two tribes needed to be wiped out because they were descended from sin and had carried on that sin throughout their existence as tribes. And the Lord's commandment to the people of Israel was wipe them out utterly. Do not marry into them. Do not take them for your slaves. Do not take their possessions. Destroy them, root and branch. Now, this sounds horrific to us today, but then you've got to look at it from God's perspective. From God's perspective, it's not murder. Why is that? Because he gave them every possible opportunity to repent, every possible opportunity to recognize that he is the God of this world. Well, excuse me, no, not the God of this world. He is the God of creation, who has stepped outside of this world because he cannot stand to be around sin. But he has given uh, these tribes of among the Canaanites 
the opportunity to repent many, many times, to regret their actions, and to step back and to um, return to the fold, as it were, to stop their sinful ways and to become good people again. And they rejected him at every turn, for 400 years, thereabouts. That was Frank Turek's argument. Dr. Turek's argument was accurate. Cody's response to that was one of utter disbelief. He was like, can you, you seriously believe this, that, that genocide is okay? And Dr. Turek said, again, to God, it's not genocide. If you or I commanded it, yes, it would be genocide, but that's, that's not the case here. To God, it's God's rules and God's gain. So if God commands it because he is the source of all moral authority, if he says that these people are breaking my moral code and must be punished for it, who are we to question him? And that's absolutely correct. There is no logical way to argue against that. Now, atheists will constantly try to argue against it by saying, well, this is immoral. Yeah, but by whose definition of morality? Yours? Because here's the thing, atheists don't understand this. And again, I'm talking as a former atheist myself. Atheists don't have any basis for their code of morality. I'll say that again. Atheists don't have any basis for a code of morality. And that's the hard truth. Once you remove God from the equation, and once you remove um, this, this ultimate source of objective authority that says that murder is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that lying is wrong, that adultery is wrong, uh, that covetousness is wrong. What are you left with? Absolutely nothing. You're left with man-made rules. Now, if a man makes rules, another man can come along and say, I've got a better set of rules, or can choose to ignore them, or can choose to enforce or not enforce them at the point of a sword or a gun. But the moment that you put something above man, and you say, no, this authority supersedes man, then you can no longer permit man to make up things as he goes along. The rules are no longer subjective. Atheists, whether they like it or not, live by a subjective moral code. The fact that many, most atheists are good people and live, strive to live moral and decent lives and strive not to hurt anyone is commendable. This is a good thing. This is a wonderful thing. Atheists are to be commended for attempting to live this way. The thing is, though, they're borrowing a moral code from other people. Specifically, they're borrowing a Christian moral code. Do not waste my time talking about Judeo-Christianity. I will slap you silly if you insist on saying stupid shit like that in the comments or in emails to me. I have no tolerance for this nonsense of Judeo-Christian morality. It's not Judeo-Christian. It's Christian. End of discussion. Judaism is a very different religion. I have respect for it, or at least for uh, certain forms of Judaism. Um, Talmudic Judaism has some serious problems, and I won't get into those because I don't know enough about it. Um, but there are plenty of other resources you can look at if you want to know more about Talmudic Judaism specifically. Now, um, atheism, as Frank Turek mentioned in that discussion, cannot provide any kind of moral code or moral framework. Um, as he said to Cody, this atheist kid, un under, you, under an atheist's worldview, 
genocide can be justified, rape and murder can be justified. That is why you have a hundred million plus, you know, over a hundred million dead due to communism. That is inescapably true. Many atheists will try to respond to this by saying, no, 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 you know, these, these people weren't real atheists. Well, yeah, they were. They were absolutely atheists. Um, the thought leaders of communist China and communist Russia and communist Cuba all denied God. They all denied religion. They all denied faith. They all said there is no such thing as a higher supreme authority. The, the supreme authority is the state, and whatever the state says, that is the law. Um, the problem is that a state is made up of men and men can change their minds. But the moment you say, again, the moment you put something above man and say, that's our source of moral authority, you can't, you can't really mess with that. You can't argue with that. If that source of moral authority changes its mind or changes its will, that's a different story. This is a problem that uh, Islam has to deal with uh, quite, you know, quite a lot, in fact. Um, Islam is shot through with massive contradictions. It is basically a man-made faith. And uh, if Muslims are listening and they get angry with me for saying that, well, look, this is the truth. Um, I'm just going where the truth points. And the truth is, uh, Muhammad was absolutely the most obvious false prophet in all of human history. It doesn't even take very much to figure out that he was a false prophet. Uh, the Quran was not... Um, revealed in a divine way. It was, in fact, compiled and redacted and compiled again and redacted again and revised and, uh, and re-revised and, and edited and, and, you know, over a period of about 250 years. It, was, it is not a permanent book. Um, the, the, the character of Muhammad, the, the prophet, the, the, as depicted in the Islamic traditions, could not possibly have existed based on the evidence that we have at the time that he is said to have existed, he could not possibly have been the man as described in uh, the Hadith and in the um, Sirah and in the Tafsir. Didn't happen. That's what the evidence tells us. Now, moving away from um, that and looking again at atheism or any um, other man-made secular humanist approach to morality, what are you left with? Um, you're left with a moral code that either borrows, plagiarizes, really, from other places, or you're left with a moral code that doesn't hang together. You're left with a moral code that doesn't work, because there's nothing above it. Um, if you don't believe me on the subject, I mean, you don't... Here's the thing. You don't need God to be good, to be a good person. That's true. You don't. Okay, you don't need that. Um, you don't need to believe in Christianity to be a good person. And I fully concede that. I fully admit that. No hesitation whatsoever. There are hundreds of millions of perfectly decent and good Muslims, hundreds of millions of good and decent Hindus, Buddhists, Confucianists, Shinto followers, uh, pagans even, um, around the world who live moral, decent lives. They don't hurt other people. They try to get on with their lives. They just try to survive. Um, they don't do anything bad to anybody. And that's wonderful. That's great. 
I have no argument with any of them. I'm just saying that if you want a code of morality that makes sense, you can't leave it up to men. And that's the problem that the atheist always confronts, and it's the problem that the atheist can never solve. So, this brings us to an interesting um, issue within atheism, which is uh, uh, a discussion that I was having actually with um, someone not too long ago. It's about Bertrand Russell. And I admire Bertrand Russell considerably. Uh, Bertrand Russell, for those who are not familiar with him, I imagine it would be, but uh, he was an interesting character. Um, this was a man who really kind of reshaped modern philosophy as we understand it. Uh, he was a, a, an aristocrat and um, a British polymath. Uh, you know, he just interests in a, a whole bunch of different fields. I mean, he was a philosopher, a logician, a mathematician, historian, writer, social critic, political activist, and he won the Nobel Prize eventually. Um, but he spent much of his life as, if not an out, outright atheist, um, then definitely a deeply skeptical person, at least when it came to the issue of Christianity. Now, I tried reading um, Bertrand Russell's uh, summation of the theory of relativity when I was about 16. I'm not saying this to make myself sound smart, because I didn't get it. Okay, Didn't understand it, so I wasn't that smart. But I could see that there were some really brilliant explanations in that little booklet, uh, in which he explained Einstein's theories and broke them down using very straightforward examples. Again, I wasn't smart enough to understand it, but I could see that there was something at work in, in the process, and it was really good. Um, so I admired his, his style of explanation very much. I thought that he was a brilliant man. But I said to somebody I was talking to, uh, he was very sloppy in his thinking about faith and religion. And this person you know, obviously admires Russell even more than I do. And he's like, what are you talking about? Um, what do you mean he was sloppy in his thinking? And I said, okay, well, go look um, at his essay, Why I Am Not a Christian. And you'll see some very serious errors of judgment and fact and, uh, and logic, which is surprising for a man with, with such a formidable intellect. Uh, and I got a, quite a bit of pushback on the subject. And I went and looked up his essay, Why I Am Not a Christian. And I was right. If you look at why I am not a Christian, you'll find several major errors. I haven't even read through the whole thing, but it's really obvious there are several massive problems with uh, Russell's summation of why he cannot believe in Christianity. Um, one of them was that he didn't believe that the historical Jesus actually existed. Now, remember, he wrote this back in, um, back in 1927. This was about 20 years after the culmination of um, a number of very, very profound and serious attacks on the Bible and on the Catholic Church. Uh, not just the Catholic Church, the, the Christianity in general in Europe was very much on the retreat. And remember, this was after the Great War, in which an entire continent basically lost its faith, lost its way, uh, and was desperately seeking for some kind of comfort, some kind of 
way of coping with the horrors of what they had just experienced. So he was attacking Christianity from the perspective of a man who was thoroughly disillusioned with existing systems and who believed that the church was confronted by serious historical questions which it could not answer. Fast forward about, well, a hundred years now, 90 years basically, to 2020. Every single major historical criticism has been answered. Every single one. If you look at the Bible and you attack it on the basis of its historicity, the, there was a time, for instance, when even um, clergymen in the church were saying, we really can't take the first ten books, uh, ten chapters of Genesis seriously because you know, there's no, where's the evidence that any of it is true? Where's the evidence for, um, excuse me, for uh, the creation account? The two creation accounts, in fact, the creation account in chapter one and the creation account in chapter two, they're, they're actually two different accounts. Um, they are woven together very, very well, but they're two different accounts. What are we to do about the issue of the Great Flood? Where's the evidence? What are we to do about the issue of Abraham's existence or David's existence? Um, you know, David was long thought to be a fictional character, like it's just a legendary mythological character in the history of Israel. Uh, what are we to do about the book of Exodus? There's no record of Exodus actually having happened. And that's a question you know, the Jews have had to answer for 2,000 years. But one by one, all of these historical criticisms were answered. We now have actual tablets or carvings or stelae showing Abraham's name. We know, roughly speaking, where Abraham was. We know, roughly speaking, where Isaac was. We know, roughly speaking, well, we know where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Um, the actual historical city sites, we know where they were now. Archaeologically speaking, we have that evidence in front of us. Um, I'm going off on, uh, on the basis of what Dr. J. Smith is saying, and I think he's right. Uh, he's done all this research. He's done the analysis. He's seen it. Uh, we know that, uh, for instance, at the towards the end of the book of Genesis, when Joseph is sold to Potiphar in Egypt, there's a very, very specific sum of money for which he is sold. Um, if you go look it up, it's in Genesis uh, chapter blah, chapter something, chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, okay? Genesis chapter 37, ESV. Um, it says in, in 37 um, verse 28, uh, The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Ishmaelites. Hang on a second. Ishmaelites. Arabs. Sons of Ishmael. Sons of um, Abraham through Hagar and Ishmael. For 20 shekels of silver. 20 shekels is a specific weight or measure at that time. Uh, according to my ESV translation, uh, shekel was about two-fifths of an ounce or 11 grams. So... Uh, 220 grams of silver. That's a lot of money. Patricia, Dr. Patricia Kroner, um, one of Dr. J. Smith's mentors, actually, from way back in the day. She, she's, uh, she's deceased now. 
uh, she was able to read and write 15 archaic languages. 15! That's the level of scholarship of this woman. The level of accomplishment is unbelievable. Um, the, the level of brain power tackling some of these problems, supposed problems with the Bible, is incredible. Um, she went back and looked at the historical records of slave prices at about the time that you know this happened, this, this supposedly happened. And she discovered evidence from that time saying, yeah, that's about the price of a slave in Egypt. So we've got the right person in the right place at the right time for the right price. It's not a pretty way to put it, but it's the truth. Uh, furthermore, when you look in Exodus, and you look in um, at the story of Exodus, for a long, long time, historians and archaeologists believe that Exodus was a mythical story because of one specific problem with the book of Exodus, which is the word Ramses in the flight out of Egypt. In the you know he's he's the pharaoh who's supposed to be pursuing uh, the the Israelites and persecuting them. Just one problem. We have evidence now that the word Ramesses was inserted by a scribe in later renditions of the original Hebrew texts. So it was a transcription additional error. The moment you take that Ramesses out, you remove yourself from the, the New Kingdom period uh, which is where all the historians have been looking. They've all been looking at the New Kingdom time uh, timeline of Egyptian history. And they're all saying, look, there's no evidence of uh, Jews living in Egypt at that time. There's no evidence of a mass migration out, no evidence of an economic catastrophe that took place in Egypt around about the time that people said there was, uh, no evidence of any of the things that the Book of Exodus says. So we can't take it, we, we cannot view the, the, the Exodus story as historical. It's, it's fiction, is what they're saying. Then along comes uh, a new set of historians who say, well, look, what if we just stopped looking at Ramesses as the guy behind all of this? And we take a step back and we look instead at the Middle Kingdom period. Now, all of a sudden, historical evidence starts piling up in droves. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. What's going on here? Um, this is right around, right before the time of the Bronze Age collapse, is, is when the actual story takes place, so about 1200 thereabouts BC. Um, the moment you start looking there, instead of 400 years later, then you've got a coherent story. Because now you have migrant peoples living in Egypt, you have a mass migration out of Egypt, you have a crossing into Israel, you have the existence of a very powerful man uh, with a, a statue built and, a, and a, a tomb built for him who seems to correspond to the historical Joseph at about the right time, in about the right place. You have the um, invasion of the, the Hyksos, uh, or the expulsion of the Hyksos, excuse me, and um, the invasion of the Sea Peoples around about the right time. All of the events start adding up. You you go to the ancient city of Jericho, and uh, you know excavations were done around Jericho, um, and the foundations of the outer walls of the old, the, the really 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 old city of Jericho, were in fact burned. 
and the dates of those burnings correspond to the time span between when the Israelites left Egypt and when they arrived uh, in Canaan, in the Promised Land. And the scorch marks around the base of the walls indicate that fire was used to conquer the city. Now, all of this is um, detailed in a superb documentary called Exodus, Patterns of Evidence. Um, I saw it on Netflix several years ago, and I've, it's, I, I think I saw it once, maybe twice. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant film. Um, highly recommend you watch it. Let me see if I can find it on YouTube. Uh, Exodus, ugh, Exodus, Patterns of Evidence. Is it there? Uh, it's there. Yep, it's there. Uh, Patterns of Exodus. Um, and if you go, you can go watch it online. I think it's fully available, uh, I believe. It's the whole thing. Yeah, maybe. Um, I hope it's the full thing, because it's just an absolutely phenomenal documentary. Is it? Is it true? Well, the evidence suggests it is. Now, there are holes in, 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 the, in the evidence that we have. And this is the reason why I say absolute biblical literalism is probably something of a mistake. Because we know that there are additions and renditions and changes to the Bible. We know it. We know it's a historical problem. The thing is, we don't make the claim that, let's say, Muslims do about their scriptures. We, we Christians do not make those claims. We do not say the Bible is the inerrant word of God. It's not. The Bible is the inspired record of the Word of God, passed through human hands with divine inspiration, human hands filled with the Holy Spirit, wrote down these things. But it's not the Word of God. Okay, We don't make that claim. So, yes, there are bound to be errors of transcription and mistakes in things that were propagated through. We know what a lot of those are. You go by the work of uh, someone like uh, Bart Ehrman, um, Dr. Bart Ehrman, uh, UNC Chapel Hill, very famous um, agnostic. He's not an atheist, he's an agnostic. Uh, he has been absolutely devastating uh, in his arguments for the historicity of Jesus Christ. There, there are many today who still argue, as Bertrand Russell did in his booklet, that Jesus did not exist. That's not true. Atheist historians will tell you, if we can be certain of two facts in all of human history, we can be certain of these two facts. Number one, Jesus Christ existed. A man named Yeshua existed in Israel around about the time that the Gospels say he did. Number two, he died on the cross. He was crucified. He died on the cross. Two facts of human history we cannot escape, cannot overcome. So, there are plenty of people who argue that, uh, even to this day, that uh, Jesus was a myth, that he did not exist. Russell was among them, and his, um, his, his argument really failed for that exact reason. And once you look at it, once you look at it that way, then it becomes a real problem. And then you read the rest of, or much of the rest of his, his, his screed, and... What, what does Russell say? Well, I don't really like what Jesus said. I don't really think that somebody like Jesus would have said the things that he said. I don't really think that he meant what he said when he said that. 
Who the hell are you to tell me what Jesus actually said? It's written right there in the text. Um, the number of misunderstandings, misquotations, take, you know, passages taken out of context, uh, it's just unbelievable. I mean, uh, Bertrand Russell brings up that old saw, I believe, in, in his essay where he says, uh, Jesus himself says, uh, don't call me a good person. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God above. Uh, that's in the Gospel of Matthew. And most people misinterpret that. Most people think that, that Jesus is, is, is being, you know, kind of self-deprecating and saying, no, you know, I'm not good. Only God is good. I am, he's, he's basically denying that he is God. That's not what he's doing at all. And if you want a refutation of that, go look up, um, scripture twisting, uh, the, the scripture twisting series on Sira International with uh, Al-Fadi, Dr. David Wood, and Sam Shamoon, in which they tackled this exact passage from the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, just break it down, and they make it very clear. No, look, you guys don't understand this passage. If, you, if this is what you're arguing, you don't understand the passage. So, the entire set of arguments that atheists have against the personage and power of Jesus Christ simply break down. There's no way that those arguments stick. There are a number of historical attacks against Jesus Christ and against the Bible. The Bible has survived every single one of those criticisms. Uh, the church, the churches in Europe, used to use the Latin Vulgates. Um, the Latin Vulgates had some serious problems with them. And after, you know, people started going back and looking at the earliest manuscripts, the absolute earliest manuscripts available um, from early Christianity, and they looked at the original Greek texts, or, well, not the original Greek text. We don't have the original Gospels. We don't. We don't have the absolutely original letters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't have them. We don't have the original text of the Book of Acts. It's not there. We have copies of copies of copies. We know that we have copies. But we have a complete New Testament sitting in the British Library. We actually have two of them. The Petropolitanus and the Alexandrinus. Um, and if you go look them up, you can go look at them yourself. I mean, the scans are available online. Complete New Testament. Um, and we can be sure from looking at that that what we have today is accurate in the English Standard Version, the RSV, the New English Translation, the NIV, the NKJV, etc. We have very high degree of confidence that what we have today matches what was in those original Greek texts. The Latin Vulgates, we can compare against the Greek text and we can say, you know what, this doesn't stack up, that doesn't add up. We can leave out the later Latin texts, which don't match up with the earlier Greek texts, and that's already been done for us. The translations that we have today especially the word-for-word -word translations such as the ESV and the NET, are very, very close to the original Hebrew and Greek texts because they compare things like the Masoretic text versus the Septuagint versus the Aramaic versus the Syriac uh, manuscripts. The, um, the New Testament is compiled on the basis of what was in the earliest Greek manuscripts. And where there is disagreement about what was in the earliest manuscripts we put in lines in our Bible and we say, we're not sure th whether this is true because the earliest manuscripts did not contain this. 
John chapter 7, 53, verse 53 of chapter 8, verse 11. Story of the woman, the, the story of the adulteress about to be stoned. Perfect classical example. Um, if we didn't have those manuscripts, we could go back to quotations from the earliest church fathers. We have something like 30,000 church quote, uh, quotations from those church fathers. All of those are dated from before 300 BC. Uh, sorry, 300 AD, excuse me. All of those 30,000 quotations come from up to or before 300 AD. We have over 86,000 total quotations from the early church fathers. With those early quotations, we could construct the entirety of the New Testament minus eh, a few dozen verses. Um, I think we could reconstruct the entire book of John, the entire Gospel of John, minus 11 verses, just from early church father quotations. That's it. That's all we'd need. So the, the level of integrity of our manuscripts, of our Bible, is unimpeachable. No book has ever been subjected to more analysis and more understanding and more in-depth research than the Bible. The level of confidence we can have in the Bible is incredible. So when atheists come back to us and say, what is the basis of your faith? We can point to so much that says this is true and this is accurate and this is complete that they have nothing to respond with. And I wish I had known this when I was an atheist, because I would not have been able to respond to it at all. I would have been like, huh, okay. You look at the structure of the Ten Commandments. I've analyzed this before. I mean, you can um, go look up a post on my blog called The Perfect Moral Code. I think it's called. And it, the astonishing thing about the Ten Commandments is you don't need any more than ten. But you cannot make do with any less than those ten. And in fact, all of those ten are encapsulated and contained in the first and second great commandments of Jesus Christ. The first great commandment is, you shall love God with all your heart and all your soul and all of your mind and all of your will, whatever. Um, and the second is, you shall love thy neighbor as you love thyself. Uh, this just boils it all down, you know, it just, it, it, it lays it out in two very simple commandments and says, this is it. But those ten encapsulate everything you need to know about morality, everything you need to build a proper legal moral code. Any less than those ten, and you can't have a functioning society. But you don't need any more than those ten. That is the level of integrity that we have in our moral law. So, when an atheist like Cody, I mean, I'm picking on him, but, you know, the new church atheists, or the, the high church atheists of Dennett, Dawkins, Harris, and Hitchens um, are just as guilty of this. When they come along, they plainly have not read the texts, and they launch into criticisms like these. You become aware of just how profoundly ignorant they are, and how little they know. And it's depressing to watch, because they really don't have a clue. Um... They haven't thought through their own positions. They haven't thought through the reality that if God commands the genocide of a particular people, he's got a reason for it. And if God is saying, these people need to be destroyed, there is, there is always a reason given in the Bible for it. Uh, you look at the story of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. Why was, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Because they sinned 
outrageously in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, um, the story of Sodom where, you know, men were doing things with men. Uh, this wasn't a sudden occurrence. This took place over many, many years, and God finally got tired of constantly asking them to repent, and they refused to repent. Um, and he destroyed them because they refused to repent. Uh, but you go back a few pages just before the destruction of Sodom, and Abraham intervenes and begs God not to destroy the city. And he says to God, if you find a hundred righteous men in this city, will you destroy it? And God says, no, I will not. And Abraham goes through, you know, 90 righteous men, 50 righteous men, 45, 30, 10, will you destroy it? God says, look, dude, not going to blow up the city because for the sake of 10 righteous men. He couldn't even find that many. There was one righteous man in the whole city, and his name was Lot. And he was rescued by the angels. So it's not like God doesn't give reasons. He does. Um, same with the, the, the Canaanite peoples. The, and the funny thing is, if you look deeper in, into the books of the Bible, and you look at the, gospel, uh, the book of Jonah, sometimes God actually acts very mercifully. And you know, Nineveh was corrupt and, and uh, disgusting and uh, horrible beyond belief. God spares the city. He sends Jonah out to, to tell them, to, to, to warn them, and he spares the city because they repent. So, when atheists come along and say, your God is a, an evil God, he, he is destructive, he is wanting, he is cruel, it's like, the simple answer to that is, no, dude, God's game, God's rules, and go read the book. RTFM, read the effing manual. Because once you start reading it, and you start analyzing it, you start trying to understand it, you realize there's a lot more depth to these issues than you, real, than you initially thought. And that, I think... You know, brings me back to where I started with this podcast, and there's a reason why I did. It's because what we see as flagrant and terrible immorality today is not God's purpose. It's not what he's doing to us deliberately. He's letting it happen because there's a purpose to it. There's a reason why he's doing it. There's a reason why it's happening. We don't understand it. We don't get it. We don't see the fullness of the plan. That's where faith comes in. And that's where you need to have faith that God is not dead. That he is very much the God of the living. As he says in the Bible. He says it right there in the text. Have faith that something is going on beyond our understanding. It could very well be that Donald Trump will not be president come January 20th next year. I don't know. I very much hope and pray that he is. I'm praying every night that he will be the president again. Because if sleepy, creepy Joe Biden, sleepy, creepy, corrupt, slow Joe Biden is president, God help us all. Um, it will mean the end of the USA very, very quickly. And Vox Day's prediction is somewhat ominous that this will take years to work itself out. Maybe it will. I don't know. It's a scary thought that it would take years for all this stuff to sort itself out and, and become known to us. But maybe that's what we have to go through. Because this corruption and this evil in the land 
is beyond imagining. I mean, I'm not just talking about a corrupted election, as bad as that is. I'm talking about the level of absolutely outrageous moral sin going on among the elites. Pedophilia, uh, homosexuality, uh, child pornography, child trafficking, um, just utter degeneracy of a level that the human mind, the ordinary human mind, cannot comprehend. And the more I see, the more I observe, the, the less attention I pay to the, to the freaking traitors of media, um, who I, I genuinely, I mean, I am, I am so fed up and sick and tired of their lies. I am no longer restrained in, in you know, saying that, oh, well, maybe we need to cut some slack. No. These people are traitors, and they deserve to be tried and treated like traitors. Um, they are direct traitors to their people. Uh, certainly in most of the American media, is, most of the British media, is, most of the mainland European media is. Um, if you go out to Russia and um, parts of Asia, not China obviously, but parts of Asia, you get somewhat more honest and objective media, but not by much. Um, the Russians, at least, I mean, yeah, they, they spout the Russian government line, but at least they actually ask some questions once in a while that are kind of on point and useful, and they're not complete morons the way that freaking jackasses at the BBC, the Guardian, the Telegraph, you know, all of these mainstream media organizations. I, mean, I am, you know, I, I, it's actually hard for me to talk about it because I am so full of anger and rage at what those people have been able to get away with. But that's the thing. Something is going on beyond time and space that we can't understand, but we're seeing the results of it right before our eyes. So, as always, don't despair. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. Don't give up faith. Our faith has been tested many times before. And every time our faith has been put to the test by people who don't believe, we've come out on top eventually. Now, eventually, it's not fun to wait for eventually. But have faith that something is moving in ways that we don't comprehend. And we need to let it play out. So in the meantime, keep praying. Stick to your principles. Stick to your beliefs. Seek out wisdom and attention, um, pay attention to what, the, to the signals that you are getting. And do not be overly concerned with what the media are telling you. They're lying. You can smell the desperation. You can see they're changing their story. Initially, no evidence whatsoever of any kind of election tampering. Now, all of a sudden, it's no conclusive evidence whatsoever of election tampering. Now, it's changed to no definitive proof. Well, wait a second, didn't you just say there was no evidence? So now there's evidence, right? Okay, there's evidence. Now there's definitive evidence. Now there's, there's, there's very clear affidavits, sworn affidavits showing evidence. So, wait a second, are you sure there's no evidence at all? There's no proof? That's what I mean when I say the media are lying to you. They're gaslighting you. Um, to a degree that they are going to pay a very high price for someday. And I think that someday is going to be very soon. So anyway, we're about out of time. Um, 
this has been you know kind of a rambling podcast i admit but uh, there's a lot to cover um i'll leave links to as many of the sources as i can that i remember in the description box but in the meantime this was didactic mind episode 56 god's not dead and i am didact signing off <laughs>